0: Welcome to the Thinking Fellows Podcast. I'm the producer, Caleb Keith, and I'm joined by our hosts, Drs. Rod Rosenblatt, Scott Keith, and Adam Francisco. Follow these great minds as they answer pressing questions about theology, history, and apologetics. This show is brought to you by 1517 The Legacy Project, serving to proclaim the gospel to all people, especially those broken by the church. Welcome to the Thinking Fellows Podcast. Today we're talking about the doctrine of eschatology, something uh, maybe not talked about too much in Lutheran uh, circles, so that'll be pretty interesting. But before we hop into the show, have got a couple announcements here today. So um, we have a guest with us. This is very important. Dr. Dan Van Voorhis. Hey, what's going on? Co-host welcome, welcome. of the Virtue in the Wasteland podcast. We had uh, Dr. Mallinson on uh, two weeks ago, which was really cool. So you're going to share some of that yeah, with us. Today absolutely. Too. I that's like to really consider
1: cool. myself the primary host and oh, okay. uh, Jeff's my sidekick but that's cool.
0: <laughs> so he's also a professor of history at Concordia University. Jeff of said the exact Ooh.
2: opposite when he was on the show. Uh,
0: yeah. so, uh, so it must be true, right? Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, professor of history and associate dean or...
1: Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I'm some kind of uh, administrator. <laughs> he is the assistant dean of arts and sciences. Oh, there I'm we go. the assistant dean of arts and sciences but uh, I am the... Uh, an associate professor of history and political thought along with your uh, your boy here Adam Francisco our boy I like that
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah so we, uh, we love having new guests on. This is kind of a, a new thing to the Glad show. Glad to get be here. Rotating guests in, so that's great. Um, just wanted to update everybody on the final result of that donation we pushed. We did through May and June. Um, we came very close to the 100% target goal, so thank you, everybody who dan- uh, donated there. That's allowed us to continue with some web development, and um, we now get to redevelop the Virtue in the Wasteland website which is really exciting too. Yeah, so.
1: yeah. We're working right now with Doug Clembara and we're going to get that thing uh, you know, even sexier.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's great. Um, so if you want to Stay up to date on these kind of things and uh, the show's coming up. You can find us on Facebook at The Thinking Fellows, Twitter with the at sign, Thinking Fellows, and of course on iTunes just by searching Thinking Fellows Podcast on there. Uh, And you can go ahead and give us a review if you like the show. Uh, All fives is appreciated. and We've had that conversation before. That's all that counts, all fives. Um, Okay, so why don't we hop into our doctrine for today. Uh, Dr. Keith has some questions that we're going to throw around, maybe some introduction to the doctrine of eschatology.
2: Yeah, and for our listeners who are new to Thinking Fellows, what we what we've been trying to do over the past several months is work through the uh, the loci or the the common topics of theology. They were first brought to Lutheranism through a man named Philip Melanchthon. Um, and he, ha- he used an ancient method called the loci communes, which basically just attempts to place subjects in, the, in a category or a system that's easy to understand. So we're on the tail end of that right now as we're coming into es- eschatology. We'll do a couple of uh, bonus shows on some um, d- doctrines that aren't as central after we finish eschatology. But we're really... Re- eschatology is the end, really, and that's mm-hmm. where we are today. So um, I thought we would start out by just... Clarifying for the listeners, what is the doctrine of eschatology? So when we say we're, we're, we're discussing eschatology, Rod, what are we talking about?
3: Well, the street-level uh, translation is the last things. <clears throat> and you have to know, if you're a Lutheran, that everybody is going to feel sorry for you that you're on such thin diet Because ours is so thin compared to every evangelical's. We will talk about temporal death, the death of the body. We'll talk about what is called the intermediate state. That is, where is grandma if we buried her last month? Or is she? Then the return of Christ. And if you want to be fancy about it, the parousia, his second coming. Then we'll jump on millennialism usually. Um... And we will talk about then the final judgment and uh, a new heavens and a new earth, uh, hell and heaven, and that's it for us. And any Baptist who's studied this for his whole Sunday school life will say, that's it? That's it for you guys? And we'll answer, yeah, pretty much it is.
2: So um, obviously we didn't come, for Lutherans, we didn't come to whatever our position, we'll get into that in a little bit, but whatever our position is on this doctrine in a a vacuum, I mean, there's been different thoughts throughout history um, on what will, you know, what will be the signs of the end, how will we recognize the end, what will happen at the end. Adam, can you kind of take us through sort of some of the different thoughts on that throughout the years?
4: Well, I'll sum up the early church to the Reformation church. And I mean, you could even push it further. Is In general, most Christian writers or thinking, thinkers for the first 1,500 years of Christian church history were convinced that the end was imminent. Yep. Uh, now, how they describe how it's all gonna unfold and what's gonna happen after Christ's return, there's a lot, of, there's no consensus. Uh, the early church fathers, if you read them, first of all, you, the early church fathers, I can't think of a, a, a work that was written that just looks at eschatology, but you have lots of eschatological commentary in the early church fathers, and they're all over the map. Uh, there are a pre-millennial, it's, this is hotly debated by scholars still, but it seems that a majority of the first... Three hundred years of Christian writers were what we might call premillennialists. That's a problematic term though, because that term doesn't pop up until about the nineteenth century. This dividing between premillennialists, all millennials, postmillennialists. But they were convinced that uh, Christ was going to return and, and soon. And when he did return, it would usher in a, a millennial kingdom of some sort, whether it be literal or spiritual, is you know, depends on what church father you look at. Uh, and that that thinking about the future, uh, whether it be near or far into the future, um, persisted through the Middle Ages. And The Middle Ages is fascinating uh, when it comes to eschatology. You've got, I mean, every writer thinks eschatologically to some extent or another. Probably the most influential medieval thinker on the eschaton was a man named Joachim Afior. Uh, uh-huh. Late 12th, I think he died in 1202 or 1203 so early 13th century thinker lived he was a monk in the southern tip of the italian peninsula and uh, what what makes him so significant is his thinking about the the future uh, was largely based on the past in that he took the he looked at the biblical text and believed he he saw patterns in the bible not like the bible code people do today and, and so on but he looked at uh, to make a long story short. He looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament. And said there are basically three ages. Uh, there's the age of the Father, which is from the creation of the world up until the incarnation of Jesus. That begins the age of the Son, and then when Jesus ascends, that's the age of the Spirit. Um, and he he was almost a literalist when it came to the millennial kingdom, um, but it. it Posed some chronological problems, uh, considering he lived a thousand years after uh, Pentecost, um, over a thousand years after Pentecost. But he, he thought that if you look at these patterns in the past, history, he didn't believe history was cyclical like a Hindu, but he did believe that history repeats itself and that there are signs from the past where if you could find them in the present, would, would tell you uh, that something was for sure to come. And he was of the mind. Uh, in general, and he 's not exactly the easiest author to read uh, that the end was coming, and that there would be a great age uh, in which essentially monks would rule the world uh, and that 'd be a lot of fun <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway um, he he well going beyond if uh if you go up to the say the early Reformation period, the late fifteenth early sixteenth century, especially, you see this sort of apocalyptic, eschatological thinking, this, this thinking that says that we can find signs that are, tell us about uh, when you know, what's going to happen in the near future persists uh, through the Reformation period. Uh, one of the things that I was really surprised about years ago when I was looking at uh, doing research on Luther and his view of the Turks is how he took the rise of the Ottoman Turks as a fulfillment of the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 7. And he believed, if you, you know Daniel chapter seven, there's these three great beasts that, or four great beasts that come up. And the last one has 10 horns on its head. And then all of a sudden a small horn pops up and displaces three for him. And that's the, right before the end. And for Luther, the Ottoman Empire was that small horn. And uh, you can, uh, what, what surprised me with all this is not so much that Luther thought that way, but that you don't find a whole lot of material on Luther and his apocalyptic thought, unless you go to something like Heiko Obermann's yeah, yeah. Um, Luther between man and the de- or uh-huh. God and the devil. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but if you go to the English translations of Luther's works, you know, the American, the so-called American mm-hmm. edition, you don't find a whole lot of um, Luther's apocalyptic writings there. There's some. But if you go to the Weimar edition, the critical edition, which is... There's a huge... I don't know how many volumes are in there yeah. now, but uh, it's everywhere. Right. He's extremely apocalyptic and, right. and eschatological.
2: Dr. Nesgim um, points out in almost every lecture he gives on Luther that Luther, even when he talks about small catechism, that Luther's theology has to be seen eschatologically or you don't understand it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. That's uh, Overman's yeah. major thesis. If you, if uh, the listeners want, I mean, uh, even in a quick glance at the Kolb, aren't Nesgim, and new introduction to the Book of Concord. The introduction on the Small Catechism. Nestigan pounds at home that the catechisms were written eschatologically. I mean, the the thought in his head when he was putting these together that was the end is here. Yeah, it, there was a.
4: It's in the Table Talk, um, and I I don't know. You know, Luther does all sorts of bizarre things and it's recorded in the table talk. At one point... Thank God we don't
3: uh, subscribe uh, oh, to Luther's writings.
1: There are sometimes <laughs> which I love to subscribe to elements <laughs> of that table talk because it's brilliant. Well, yeah. But other times, yeah, leave him alone. I guess at one point he's they're
4: sitting around the table, Nicholas von Amsdorf and Johannes Bugenhagen and whoever else was there. And I guess they are talking about the Turks. It was probably 1530 or though, or somewhere around there, uh, just after the attack on Vienna. And allegedly... And I think it's an only one table talk. Luther wrote a, a year on the bo- on the wall, as if to suggest this is when the end comes. This is when oh the end. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh good grief! But uh, that that idea that the Daniel chapter seven was being completely fulfilled in their own day and age in the 16th century was commonplace for the Lutheran reformers, um, and it persid- persisted past the Reformation period. There's a book. Is it Robin Barnes? Prophecy and Gnosis in yeah, the German at a Reformation. Yeah, that, Stanford,
1: that's a good book. Um, it goes all the way up to Gera 17th, maybe even 18th century. That's a good and book. The, the one I, I might recommend that's a little more accessible is Irena Bacchus. Mm. Irena Bacchus wrote a book called... Um, uh, Reformation readings of the Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very simple, and it goes through the sort of Calvinist view, and it goes through the Anabaptist view, and it goes through the Lutheran view. Huh. And I think it's very helpful because it the, the Lutherans didn't write much on the Apocalypse, uh, but people like David Catreus yeah. uh, who did, he, they did. He right. wrote a commentary um, dedicated to uh, a king of Sweden. And she goes through that and it's, it's a very, I think it's a little easier than Barnes. Barnes's book was his dissertation turned into a book. And so those sometimes are difficult to read. Sure. So Irena Bacchus, um, that's, mm. that's one. If, if I can mention real fast, just because I was a student of Rod's and so I have to do bibliography. Um, <laughs> when, you, when you go to Yochum of Fjord, um, I was able to meet uh, right before she, she died uh, Marjorie Reeves, who wrote mm-hmm. uh, the major work on Yokima Fiore, which is another great, great book on medieval uh, apocalypticism. And then uh, the other text is that's very, very readable Norman Cohn, C O H N, who wrote a book called uh, The Pursuit of the Millennium and that's just about millennial thought in the Middle Ages and how it's coming from all over the place and the various monks who are predicting this and that. And... Is
3: kiliasm a synonym for it, um, millennial thought?
1: Yeah, kiliasm refers to a thousand years, millennial, you know, a thousand. So, yeah, it's, it's, you'll find the, the word uh, used uh, somewhat interchangeably.
2: So this leads me into uh, a question. I I, um, just recently finished teaching a class at Concordia on creeds and confessions, and it uh, provided the opportunity for me to really dig into the Lutheran confessions again. And there's a, I think, probably a little red portion of the um, treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope um, that highlights, I think, how uh, eschatological the Reformers were, Melanchthon included, obviously, as the author of the uh, power and primacy of the Pope. And he discusses the idea that the um, the fact that the pope now is wearing purple copes is a sure and certain sign that the end <laughs> is near, um, because you know he he relates it to the fact that possibly Christ wearing you know being draped in purple as a you know as a, a mock king during uh, his passion was a prophecy of the end that was to come, and now we see this fulfilled in somebody else sort of walking around dressed as a king um, in an ecclesiastical uh, format or uh, point of view. But, you know, we don't talk about this a lot in Lutheranism at all. Um, do we have a position on this? I mean, do Lutherans typically have a position on it? And if so, what is it? I mean, Rod, you went through the, the different sort of we, we say that, you know, basically eschatology is when we discuss, we discuss the death of the body, the intermediate state, the return of Christ, the final judgment, the new heaven and new earth. But what is our sort of position on timing and, you know, the thousand years? At our best,
3: confessionally, we leave it unspoken. Uh, I was going to throw in when Dan was speaking, Calvin wrote commentaries on 65 books of the Bible.
1: Wait a second. (laughs) That's
3: one
4: short. (laughs) Yep. Not one on Revelation. That's right. Oh, okay.
3: Anyway, in our circles... We did some, but not a lot. And where our confessions ended up was what I quoted. Those things will go to the wall on. When you start drawing charts on napkins at Danny's with verses from Daniel and from Thessalonians. You're in a bad place. We're not doing that. Yeah.
2: (laughs) <laughs> so uh, Dan, maybe you could run us through the different millennial positions and yeah. say where Lutherans typically land on that. Yeah, give me, know, a, I've heard
1: give, me, give me a napkin and I'll, uh, I'll start drawing <laughs> out Because that, uh, well, that's how we do it. Uh, yeah, so basically there are a number of views and as Adam brought up, that these views are, are not, that the names aren't crystallized until really the 19th century. But we have um, historic premillennialism. And the historic premillennialism is something that you could say that the church fathers held to. And uh, there's a, a book, uh, just to give more books, uh, there's um, uh, Mark Brighton, a colleague of ours, uh, in his Reformation Heritage Bible Commentary on Revelation, is uh, is quite helpful. His father wrote a massive tome on Revelation. Mark's is a little more accessible. And it deals with the idea of uh, immediate versus Eminent, and when we talk about the word near, the distinction there. And so, is Christ's return immediate, like it's coming in the next generation, or is it eminent? That is, it's it's going to come.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And usually, what they mean, what what uh, Mark suggests that that the writers of uh, uh, of Scripture mean, and many of the church fathers mean, is that it's eminent, not immediate. And so this historic premillennialism says there's going to be a reign of God on earth. Mm-hmm. The kingdom is already here. The kingdom came in Christ, but there's going to be a visible kingdom. Yeah. And that visible kingdom is not immediately coming necessarily, but is, is certainly eminent. Uh, uh, so that that's a position that, that goes through. And then of course, uh, Adam, you brought up the, the middle ages and how it goes all over the place dispensational premillennialism is different from historic premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism, that's the stuff, Rod, that you're talking about where a guy at Denny's is going to take a yep. napkin out and draw you know, all the ages of the church. Yep. And the dispensational premillennialism is going to look at the idea that there are different dispensations throughout time and we're going to enter a dispensational... Uh, a, a dispensation, which is a time before the millennium comes, seven dispensations, and it's going to be before the millennium comes. And so this started to break out. and I'll talk about the historical significance of this later, but this is where you get a, a doctrine of the rapture, because you've got to put that rapture somewhere where, where unbelievers are or, or sorry, believers are caught up uh, into heaven. And with this with this rapture, there's also a tribulation. If you're, getting, if you're getting, you know, this is too much, good.
0: Uh, there's a pre-tribulation
1: rapture. There's a post-tribulation rapture. There's a mid-tribulation rapture, pre-wrath rapture, and um, revealed rapture. Okay, this is how wild it gets, um, and they'll draw it out for you. But that's pre-millennialism. That's saying things are going to get so bad here on earth, things are going to get so bad that Christ is going to come For the first of his two appearances at the end times, and he's going to either let the people, everyone, live through a rapture, or you know, rescue some Christians. So that that's dispensational premillennialism.
3: Every evangelical kid had his pants scared off watching movies to that
1: effect. Oh, a a thief in the night (coughs) was was one. Um, of course, if you're familiar with the uh, the Left Behind series, that is all premillennial dispensationalism.
3: It is, it's the most common on the street. Um, we do have something on that from CPH. We have something from the, the what that uh, think tank.
1: Uh, CTCR, CTCR wrote something on it, and Reed Lessing wrote something on it. Okay. Um, I would take Reed Lessing over the CTCR, but that's just me, and I'm, you know, don't blame. The, well, the opinions. CTCR is yeah. short. Yeah. The opinions uh, by me do not represent the opinions of the Thinking Fellows podcast. Um, (laughs) Oh, sure they do. (laughs) No, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, so that's premillennialism. That's what you're going to get a lot of. At least from about 1890 to 2000. And there's an interesting switch I can talk about later. The second is postmillennialism. Now, postmillennialism, think of the word millennial, thousand years, right? They're still thinking literal thousand years that Christ is going to return not pre-thousand years, but post-thousand years. So if the premillennials believe that things are just going to get worse and worse and worse, and then Christ is going to return, and then there's going to be a millennium, the post-millennials are those who believe that things are going to get better and better and better. Yes. We are going to usher in the millennium. Yep. And this fits right in with the progressive age in the 19th century. Yep. The beginning of the 20th century and the the sort of... Uh, groups you might uh, uh, you might tie together with uh, you know theological modernists or Salvation Army types. Uh, think of what's what's liberalism. The oh, absolutely. What? I
3: didn't, and it was going to be social, and we were going to do it. And if Christ yeah. wanted to return, he was welcome.
1: And the um, hmm. what's what's that hymn that we sing? Uh, "Onward, Christian Soldiers." Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's that kind of idea. And (laughs) so it's, things are going to get better and better Uh, and better. (laughs) Stop Stop it. I'll I'll leave the show right now. Um, And so uh, the post-millennial believes that that it's going to get better and better all the time. And then there'll be a millennium. It will be literal. And then the liberals will play with that a little bit and say it's not quite liberal. And then you have the, the response to that using the language of premillennial and post-millennial is amillennial. So oftentimes your friend might say, oh, you guys are amillennial. Mm-hmm. And you, if, you, if it's a short conversation, just nod your head yes and, yeah. and walk away. That language, <laughs> amillennial, is really just a, a response to the millennial conversation happening in the 20th century. Um, I, I think the, the best way that we talk about it uh, is that the kingdom of Christ has come and is going to come. Yep. And, and if you leave it at that um, and, and then go to the doctrines, Rod, that you spoke about, you're good to go. And, and that's fine. So just, I think we need to recognize that millennial is just theological, modern shorthand for saying, not the Biola crew, not the liberal crew, that, that thought, you know, we were going to, you know, usher in heaven on earth in the 1890s. But the crew that said, yeah, you know, Christ nice is coming. One verse when it in happens. Revelation
3: 20, don't build too much on it. Yeah, could, yeah exactly.
1: Could you
4: trace this, the millennial position, uh, back, a lot of people trace it back to,
1: say, St. Augustine. Is that I think so I think that you can trace it back to the early church fathers that you were talking about. That none of them wrote major works on the millennium. And when they did, it they were kind of it, it had that imminent versus immediate mm-hmm. distinction they would make sometimes. But it was a don't think about time and this goes back mm-hmm. to Augustine, mm-hmm. don't think about time yeah. the way scripture talks about time when it speaks of, you know, a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. And the amillennialist essentially is saying, don't do that. And yeah. so it can go back to the one church. Of,
3: one of the definitive works on this in our day is by my co-host on the White Horse Inn, Kim Riddlebarger, Dr. Mm-hmm. Riddlebarger. <clears throat> and he wrote one on amillennialism. And it really is, it's so good that our sem profs are footnoting to it. And we share that, the reformed and we, the truly reformed, and we share that amillennialism. Well, Kim's book is, is almost definitive in our day. Uh, more than you want to know, but it's good.
4: Have, have you heard of pan-millennialism? <laughs>
3: that was Walter Martin.
4: <laughs> It'll all pan out, isn't yep. it? Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> I think
1: that's what I am, I think.
2: That's yeah, kind I of just, the virtue in the wasteland position, I, I, right? Everything is uh,
1: going to be okay? Well, it's <laughs> funny because, I, I mean, just to 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 say that is that we do, you know, on our show, which is about the left-hand kingdom, we say, you know, at the end of every show despite what you've heard, despite all the, the the mess we're talking about, everything's going to be okay. But we say, in an eschatological sense, yeah, in that yeah. All work out this in the is evening. the penultimate world and we do our best, but ultimately, everything is going to be okay. Gotcha. Ultimately. For the Christian. For the Christian. Christ is going to return and don't worry about it and serve your neighbor yep. <laughs> and <laughs> fulfill your vocation yep. and don't worry about it. And so that's sort of where we've gone off with that.
2: Great place to take our first break.
0: Yeah, that is. Uh, It'll tie right into our little commercial here in a minute. All right. See you in a second, guys. Welcome to our break. Uh, Today, as we've said before, and as you've heard, we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Dan Van Forrest, co-host of the Virtue in the Wasteland podcast, main host of the Virtue in the Wasteland podcast. Yeah, that's what I like to say. I like to say um, primary host. (laughs) And he's going to talk a little bit about that show.
1: Yeah. So if you are interested in the Thinking Fellows, one of the things that the 1517 Legacy Project I think does really well is that it tries to throw a net out to get people... um, who are thinking different thoughts into a, a stream of thinking about the gospel and Christianity. And so Virtue in the Wasteland started out as a part of what was called the League of Faithful Masks, which was run by Uva Simonetto, And Virtue in the Wasteland was a podcast that Jeff and I started a little over three years ago. And the goal was to do a, a podcast that concerned the left-hand kingdom. And, you know, there's, there are different ways of interpreting the, the left-hand kingdom. So we do talk about theology um, that is can be part of the left-hand kingdom as we live in both. Uh, but we've done that show and have been most successful, I believe, in having that show, um, someone taking that show and sending it to a friend. So I can't think of a topic that we haven't hit. <laughs> We're running out of topics maybe because there are so many topics that we hit and guests that we bring on because we want people to to listen in, to hear what's happening, and then find their way into 1517 by a way they might not have thought of before. So we have musicians and artists, and we have all sorts of different people who are going to come on, some of faith, some not of faith, and our job is just to let them talk. And so it's a, it's a really fun show in that, we just kind of open the gates and and let anything come out with whatever guest wants to talk about whatever, and we're not there to refute them, but we're there just to let you listen to them talk and to us, for, for us to interview them. And so um, we've been doing shows, as I mentioned, for over three years. Uh, a couple shows, if you go to the, the com website, we have on our front page our favorite shows. And so you can go there and you can see ones that we've done on um, art, poetry and film, uh, our most popular shows, uh, guests, books, global issues, etc. cetera. Uh, our very second episode that we did, we went up to Los Angeles and we interviewed a filmmaker, uh, atheist filmmaker, who was fascinated with Harold Camping. Who is was the gentleman who about five years ago said the world was ending. And this guy, Zeke, was a uh, became very good friends as a, an atheist with Harold. And Harold said, you're the only guy, Zeke, that I'm going to let record me. Huh. And so Zeke did a movie called um, uh, The End Times, uh, The Apocalypse According to Harold Camping. And we had Zeke on the show. Hmm. And Zeke talked about it. And you can find that under Great Guests on our, our front page. Uh, we also have uh, a lady named Amy Frickholm Johnson, who is just a fascinating, fascinating person who wrote on the sort of social, cultural implications of the Left Behind series <laughs> in the church. Whoa. And so uh, that's on the front page. It's called Left Behind with Dr. Amy Frickholm. And that's a show that, that gets into a lot of this stuff on a, on a sort of very... Um, she's fascinating. So uh, that's another one that that I I certainly recommend. Um, One of our our most famous shows or or most popular shows was a show we did with um, Jay Ranke, uh, who was an LCMS pastor. And there's there's a lot going on with him. And we had him on and there's a documentary about him so you can check that one out. Uh, And then also um, uh, on CS Lewis with Steve Mueller We get into the thought of C.S. Lewis. And then we've got our our friend Adam Francisco. If ever we have a question about what's going on in the Middle East, we just say, Adam, get here. (laughs) So he's been on three shows. And I say, how high? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so you can find all of his shows under Global Issues, uh, along with Dr. Uva Simonetto talking about Vietnam, which is, I mean, these are fun. So I I can't give a favorite show, but we have our favorite shows at VirtueInTheWasteland.com on the front page. Uh, There you can also go... And um, uh, get our our shirt, which is a Durer print of uh, uh, melancholy, mm. and it's um, it's it says on it everything is going to be okay, and that that's Durer's sort of eschatological thought. And as soon as that, sh- uh, that shirt is going to be sol- selling out, and as soon as that's sold out, we're not going to make any more. Oh. And we're going to make another shirt with a different print and a different something. And so you can just keep, uh, you know, keep your collection going. <laughs> so uh, you can go on virtueinthewasteland.com. You can also uh, find us on iTunes, of course. And um, you know, especially if, if I think this is your bag, and I think there are a lot of people who listen to both of these shows. Yep. Um, you, know, you can get your sort of theology and culture and then you can decide which shows you know. Hopefully, you want to forward to friends. You know, hopefully, you want to find something that, that that touches on something that your your Baptist friend or your unbelieving friend or the, the, uh, what Rod calls the alumni, the sad alumni of the church. Uh, oftentimes, Virtue in the Wasteland uh, does shows for those kinds of people, uh, who might have one foot out the door, uh, but want to hear that the conversation about Christianity and culture can actually be, um, not what it probably was at your church
0: that's great yeah so uh good backlog there like you said three years of uh
1: three years coming up on our 200th episode
0: so there's a lot of stuff that people can uh get into a lot of different topics that you might not uh think about so going through there and scrolling through what you guys have available yeah and if you want to get mad
1: listen to our show on uh marriage morality and the law if you want to to
0: get (laughs) Get angry at us (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, so that's a great. listen to that.
1: Or the one on The Sin of Onan, which is a show about masturbation.
0: <laughs> and you guys only have two explicit episodes. Hard, hard to believe. Yeah, yeah. Believe. <laughs> Good grief. The Sin of Onan. <laughs>
1: Good hey, grief. It's all there. It's all It's all <laughs> stuff that matters. Uh, I should mention that Jeff, um, Jeff actually did that show, or we did it together, but Jeff has a, a book uh, coming out through New Reformation Press. Um, he is finishing in August. And getting it to the editor, it's a book called Sexy, and it's a book on on sexual uh, ethics and basically how the church has gotten it wrong by people saying that Christianity is all about, you know, what you touch or who you touch. Um, And then I'll say at the same time as that book Sexy comes out, my book Monsters is coming out, and that's a book about uh, hope and uh, addiction. And two weeks ago on the show, we replayed a talk that I gave at the uh, Christ Hold Fast conference. Yep. Um, about uh, my, uh, my addiction uh, issues and, and faith. So those are two books that are coming out uh, at the end of this year. You can look for those.
0: Yeah, lots going on there. So great, uh, great way to segue back into kind of this uh, end times discussion, especially you guys focus on that comfort of that. And Dr. Keith kind of, I think, wanted to roll into some questions about that application.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Dan. Um, this seems like a really big deal. Um, In every other Sort of system Maybe not You know Confessional Calvinism um, As much But Sort of Christianity culturally really emphasizes this doctrine in a big way. What's some why why is that? I mean, you you've talked to me before about the Shibboleth and conservative Christians versus liberals, and, um, and just you know what's what's going on there. It, why it, is it,
1: it so? It really comes out of the 19th century second Great Awakening, and the second Great Awakening is that which is led by people like Charles Finney, and it's it's that which really gave American Christianity the template for which it still you know, is working on. And I think that's, that's important. I I, I want to note that, you know, when I first became a student at Concordia, um, I had just been baptized. i just become a Christian. And I, I, you know, had Rod for a bunch of classes and I remember Rod would always, he, you'd always say, why are you so into this Christian radio? <laughs> because I would listen to Raul Reese yeah, yeah. and I would listen to Chuck Smith and yeah. I would just, and I just wanted to know why are they talking about the end times so much? Yes. And so as I got into that, it went back to the 19th century and these revivalists who essentially said, we're going to bring heaven on earth. It's coming. It is not imminent. It is immediate. It's happening. And so this got a number of people riled up. And then over in uh, England, there was something called the Niagara Bible Conference. And it was essentially the English dealing with European liberalism, saying, how are we going to distinguish ourselves from these liberals on the continent? And so people like uh, uh, Jan Darby and C.I. Schofield uh, get together and start putting together a, a way of thinking about the scriptures Literally,
3: prophetic Bible conferences.
1: Yes, literally, right, as opposed to those who don't hold to it literally. Yep. And so, one of the ways they did that was by putting together a doctrine of the end times, and most importantly, is when they put together that that uh, doctrine of the end times, they put it into a Bible commentary, and you can't underestimate the historical significance of Bible commentaries because those shape generations of thinkers
3: whole whole sets of footnotes to the most popular bible sold in america for how long and the notes are by C.I.
1: Schofield. Yep, it uh, was published in 1909, and it's the C.I. Schofield Bible, and you'll probably see it around.
3: Yep. My,
2: my grandma, I think I have it over here. For yeah, my, yeah. My I mean, was just a, it, it was
3: sold by the zillions.
1: she
2: watched Pat Robertson on the uh, 700 Club and with her yep. Schofield study Bible on her lap and
1: make copious notes. Yeah, yep. and that's so This this comes out around 1909, and this is, of course, when the modernist fundamentalist controversy breaks out in America.
3: Presbyterian. And
1: this is in the Presbyterian world. And so the modernist fundamentalist controversy has a, a, it's a, it's a very long story, but there's a branch of fundamentalists who say, we are going to ask you what your doctrine of the end times is. And
3: it'll be our litmus test for whether you're, if you're a pastor, whether you're even a Christian.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so people like R.A. Torrey, who was involved in the Schofield Reference Bible, who of course starts Biola University yep. um, is going to start to uh, make this the shibboleth for professors. And so up until about seven years ago, you could not teach at Biola University yep. if you were not a hardcore yep. premillennial dispensationalist. Now, yep. that's changed a bit yep. uh, as they've, they've you know had to, to change a little bit. But nonetheless, the, the doctrine of, of the millennium became the shibboleth. Now, what's interesting is that the Fundamentals, which was actually a series of books that were were published that said, here's what conservative Christians believe.
3: And edited by Orr.
1: Yes. Uh, it,
3: who is no fool.
1: No, and had uh, articles by B.B. Uh, Warfield, yep. who I'm going to say just for myself has a great uh, um, section on uh, creation, but I'll leave that alone. And um, also there's a guy named Charles Erdman, not with two E's, but one E, And he, at a Princeton seminary, wrote the doctrine for the fundamentals on the end times, and he is explicitly not premillennial. So premillennialism and fundamentalism did not necessarily come together right in the beginning. But as the the controversy came and as the fundamentalists as we might call them became more and more radicalized as this became the shibboleth do you believe in premillennial dispensationalism like our scofield bible as that became uh, the shibboleth not only did it start to uh, overtake you know bible studies you know and and sort of the cultural approach to christianity because it was it was seen as relevant Right? It was seen as, you know, rather than just, okay, we get it, you know, you know, Paul's letter to the Galatians, but what about Daniel? Yeah. What about Revelation? Yeah. And it became sexy. And so, you know, and then of course the creation of the State of Israel. And then people say, Oh, well, this must be a sign. Right. And now you've got people like Jack Van Impey, and you know, you've got Pat Robertsons, and the whole TBN Channel 40 world is actually aligned with the whole Chuck Smith. Calvary Chapel movement, and so we have strange bedfellows with with radical Pentecostals. With you're just American evangelical, and the one thing upon which they can agree is premillennial dispensationalism. And so they decide, well, if that's what we can agree on, we'll we'll join arms there. And so the 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 story, and I'm I'm making this a very short, brief version of it. The story of how this happened comes from this very, very peculiar, aberrant second great awakening into the, the modern church. And so it's it's um, like I guess it's changed a little bit, but Darby. Yeah. Is
3: it is it the case, as I've heard, <clears throat> that the whole dispensational way of looking at the Bible began with the dreams of a 13 year old girl?
1: That, that is something that, that comes
2: out of the, the idea Lord of- Lord have mercy, <laughs> trusting anything to the dreams of a 13-year-old
3: girl. Well, uh, you know, that I've commonly heard
1: that. Yeah, that, that is, and, and Darby is one of the men with Schofield, one of the leaders of the Niagara Bible Conference, and whether that story is true or whether it helped him think about, I mean, this this was a radical new interpretation where they were going to figure out what was happening based on the Book of Daniel uh, and Revelation put together, and so um, well, I've heard that story. I don't know if it's apocryphal, but okay. but nevertheless, it is a a group of men who are trying to uh, innovate in theology,
3: and and, and uh, they have a, a litmus test for who's a liberal.
1: Yeah, and that that's what comes out of the the, especially in America in the 20th century, and so the end times for uh, you know Lutherans has always been whatever, but for the evangelical world, it has been, it has been everything.
2: Right. So we've often discussed on this show that the the center of Lutheran theology is Christology, really. Yep. It's the, the personal work of Christ. It's Christ's death and resurrection for you. Yep. And the if you, again, if you picture that kind of like the hub of a wheel, everything comes back to it. <laughs> Would it be fair to say that for
1: even modern evangelicalism, this is the hub? Well, I would say that modern evangelicalism, one of the problems is it doesn't have a hub. One of the problems is there is no center. And so there are disparate centers. There are all sorts of little poles around which they they agree. And so if they had one position and you could say, okay, well, let's take you know group A and group B and, and talk it out, and you could convince group B that group A is right or the other way around, That's that's thinking the way... I think we think going back in our traditions through the Reformation and, and the, the pre-Reformation church, the modern evangelical church does not have the various uh, doctrines laid out like we do.
3: It was much better <coughs> 25 years ago when I sure. was with N. It's in decline from then radically.
1: Yeah, and so what you can look at is if you go to most church pages, um... And you want to see, okay, what confession of faith do they follow, they're usually gonna have a little drop down on their website that says what, what we we believe. What we believe. Yeah, 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 And it's just gonna be a mishmash of things sure. based on what the pastor learned. Right. Premillennialism will
3: it's gonna be
1: most of the time it's gonna be premill because they come out of biola or they come out of Dallas Theological Seminary. Yep. And I think it's um it's Yeah, and so it's hard to say that it's the hub. And, and I find this, the, the most difficult part of modern evangelicalism is no hub. there is no hub. Yeah, there is good. no center.
2: That's good. Okay, last question as we wrap up here. Um, for our listeners, is there, and throwing this out to everybody, is there comfort in this? I mean, where, what comfort can we find in, in this idea of eschatology of the end times? I mean, why... I think, I think there probably is, but it seems like there's a lot of confusion. Um, but from the text of Scripture, can we find something that, you know, if, again, if Christ is the hub of this, of this thing for us, is there comfort to be found in studying this doctrine?
3: Well, the early Lutherans believed there was, but it certainly isn't as we've known it in America. <laughs> the early Lutherans viewed it through justification, as we view everything through it. And that is, you need not fear the judgment. If the judgment is next week, you need not uh, stay awake at night. Why? Because Christ's saving work for you is a finished one, and this is going to work.
1: Yeah. I I found that um, I I just recently, for the first time, watched the Lord of the Rings movies. And... Rod won't watch him. I know. Um, and, and anyways, in the movie and in the book, there's um, there's a, a scene towards the end where uh, Pippin and Gandalf are together and it's it's all over. The orcs are going to destroy them. And Pippin says, um, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf says, no. Um, and now, of course, he's talking in, in the sort of mythical, mythical world of Tolkien, but this is with the Christian... Background, he says, um, this this is a path, but it's not the end. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back, and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it: white shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. And and I know in the last battle, and that quote from from Lord of the Rings, you you have this picture that there is this thing beyond. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think when when you're at funerals. Or people are wondering, well, is it soul sleep? Uh, is it this? Is it that? Annihilation. First, you go to the that you don't need to worry about judgment. And then secondly, you go to, well, what's, what's it like where we're going? Hmm. Well, the, hmm. the, the gray rain curtain is rolled back and everything is a far green country. And, hmm. I, and I think to just the, to think about that, th- that's why on the Virtue in the Wasteland show, we say everything's going to be okay. And we get people saying... How on earth can you say that? Mm-hmm. And we say, this is why. Mm-hmm. And it is essentially the doctrine of the end times That's as to great. why we can have our our tagline for the show. That's great. Everything's going to be okay.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll add one thing to that and then we can, unless Adam's got something, we can be done. Um, I studied with Jim Nest again and I had the opportunity to hear a couple of his um, funeral sermons. And he begins every funeral sermon by coming out to the casket, laying his hand on the casket and saying, we stand here in the sure hope of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, amen. And then he begins to preach a extremely gospel-centered sermon. Terrific. And I think that's the hope there, right? Same kind of just piggybacking yeah. on that, that that curtain will be pulled away, the green country will be there, and you will actually, if you are in Christ, you will actually be there in your flesh, yep. and you will see God, and that's the hope. So. Yep. We talked about
4: dreams of 13-year-old girls earlier. Right?
2: Oh, Lord have mercy.
4: My, my uh, six-year-old, we were at the beach just the other day. And uh, the waves were kind of large, and she goes running towards the shoreline, and her sister, now nine-year-old sister, says, Laney, you're going to die. And Lee says, that's okay. I'm gonna, I'll go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Another <laughs> one. The confidence. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Another one that's worth mentioning, are the last few pages of Pilgrim's Progress, hmm. where he has to go through the river but he's not going to be alone going through the river and then he comes out on the other side. Some of the most magnificent English prose you'll ever read yeah. Yeah. when he yep. comes out on the other side. It's just a few pages.
1: Yeah. yeah. And of course, that all has to do with the doctrine of, of, of heaven. Yep. And which is tied to the end times, but we maybe want to take people off the doctrine of end times and point them to... The doctrine of heaven. The doctrine yeah. of heaven, yeah. which, which is, for us, and at least in our confessions, yeah. part of the doctrine of, of the end times. Yeah, I think of, like, great divorce, too. I yep. mean,
3: Well, I think of the last battle, the Narnia, yeah. <clears throat> the seventh book. We haven't had eschatological books in Protestantism for a century. Not much. And we're in desperate need of them. I always point adults and children to the last battle, because I don't have many choices.
1: And eschatological books—you don't mean. I mean, we've got the Left Behind series. We've got no, no, all those. No, no, you no. mean eschatological I, in that the the books about the final right. destination.
3: Yeah, and why and how and what can we glean from Scripture and what can we not
1: mm-hmm. glean?
2: All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Van Voorhis, for being hey. here. We have a special uh, gift for you today. Do to you? Look you at are this. a coffee aficionado. I, I am indeed. You know? so I, I... We got you a bag. Well, a part of a bag of our favorite <laughs> coffee here, Firefall Coffee Roasting Company from Groveland, California. Groveling. By you. Well, thank
1: you very much. Thank you. It's uh, uh, it's show. been a pleasure to to be on with with you guys, who are, of course, uh, my friends, and and we're all together in the fifteen seventeen project. So thanks for thanks for having me on. Been yeah. great being here.
0: Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, If you have any questions about the show or anything that you'd like to comment, you can always add comments to our new website at thinkingfellows.com or you can send
1: uh, anything else to thinkingfellows.com.